We come this Sunday to the uh, final installment of a series of sermons that I have preached throughout the summer. Some of you, I hope, will remember that the title of that series had something to do with building an irresistible testimony. What my hope was is that more and more you and I will become uh, more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and by so doing, uh, the Lord may see fit to use us in a more uh, aggressive way, a more expansive way to reach men and women who do not know Christ. You remember the, um, uh, the series, as I said, was entitled Building an Irresistible Testimony. Here's the series. You know, I keep these things uh, just in case you ever um, plan to do away with me. You know, I can preach them in another church uh, uh, at a later date. But do you remember way back in early June, we started with this... Um, this sermon on uh, a, an attitude of grace. Remember I mentioned the, the, the guy who had the, uh, I met in the Walgreens, had the blue mohawk. Remember that? And, and I, oh, that, was, that was really a good sermon there. And, and, and the next one had to do with, uh, it was entitled The Winged Child. We were talking about contentment. And um, uh, that wasn't so good. But then the, the next one, uh, right around July the 4th, had to do with humility. And you might remember I, I read that wonderful quote from Abraham Lincoln. And we talked about uh, that, uh, that the humbled heart and uh, then we talked about marriage, and we said I was make, making the point that if we're ever going to reach a lost, a lost world, that our marriages are going to have to reflect that we know Jesus Christ and that we honor Him in those marriages. We talked about uh, how to improve the marriage. And then the one that I, that I really particularly enjoyed, and I think uh, you did too, was sovereign stumbling. That had to do with being real. Remember we had that skit up here about how are you doing, I'm fine, you're fine, everybody's fine. And, and we talked about how a realism demands that we understand that we're all going to stumble in, uh, in various ways. And then the next one on uh, about uh, how we uh, endure affliction. Boy, that brought a lot of tears that day. Uh, yes, that uh, was about, you know, if we're going to have the same kind of afflictions that the non-Christian world is going to have, then we're going to have to respond to them differently. And then the next one, uh, you know, you apparently didn't like that one very much, um, uh, about searching for shelter. We talked about the church being a, a city of refuge, you may recall. And then the last one, which was really the bummer of the bunch, uh, it had to do with character. Uh, what, are we, what, are, what kind of people are we in private? That was a series. Uh, so what we have here is a, a, a portrait of a person who is, um, is content and he's humble and he's real and he's got a good marriage. He's a person of character. He handles his afflictions well. He participates in a church that's a city of refuge. That's, that's the kind of testimony that, um, that I'm suggesting might be useful to God in reaching a non-Christian world. You know... I've been the pastor here almost 11 years in February, and, um, and I've grown to know you, um, most of you, some of you, and the more I've come to know you, the more I've come to love you. And I'm convinced that, um, that those things that you heard from me all summer long are things that you really would like to do, things that um, you wanted long before I mentioned them to you. You really would like to be someone who is a man and woman of character. You really would like to uh, learn contentment, which is something we have so little of. I'm convinced that as a group, you really want to do those things. But you can't. You want to be that. But you can't. You just can't pull it off. In case I've confused you, I hope to somewhat clarify what I mean. But before I do that, I want to give you an illustration of what I mean. 
I said there was a reason I thought in Psalm 101 why it was noted that this particular psalm was a psalm of David. David, the man after God's own heart. And the man that steps before the people of God and says, I'm telling you, Lord, I am going to behave before you wisely in a perfect way. I'm one, oh God, that uh, I'll not set anything wicked before these eyes. No, they might, but not me. I, uh, I don't like, I, I will not ever know per, uh, wickedness or perversion. You know, that, that those people have to depart from me. Uh, the one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, not me. Uh-uh. I don't like people like that because I know you don't like people like that. My eyes will be on the faithful of the land. Verse 7, he who works deceit and he who tells lies, mm-mm, they'll never be in my presence. That's David who said all that stuff. Now, how'd he do? Think with me about the incident with Bathsheba. You know, there he is out one night doing things that he shouldn't be doing in a place that he shouldn't be. And he spies a woman up on a rooftop taking a bath. Her name was Bathsheba. Calls her over to his house, impregnates her, and then uh, formulates this little scheme to try and get out of what he's done. He finds that he can't get out of that, and so he has her husband uh, indirectly murdered. So, David, I will behave wisely in a perfect way, will you? (laughs) Oh, David... You didn't do so well. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. You won't? Well, what are you doing out there spying on that naked woman for, huh? Um, I, uh, I, uh, will cast all wickedness from me. You will, will you? Then David, tell me, what would you call an affair? Huh? And then um, uh, those people with haughty looks and a proud heart. I can't, I can't stand those people. But David, there you were strutting around on the rooftop and spied this woman that you knew was a piece of forbidden fruit. But you're the king. Ah, you're the big shot in town. Because you are, you can have any woman in the, war, in the kingdom you want. So, David, those proud and haughty people who will never live in your house, They live in your house, all right, David. And you're it. Um, My eyes will be on the faithful of the land. Ha! Sure, Dave. You know what you do with the faithful of the land? You murder them. You brought back her husband who was fighting the battles of Israel for you. The faithful warrior that wouldn't even go and spend the night with his own wife. You know what you do with the faithful, David? You put him on the front lines and tell Joab to take the army and run so that he'll be murdered. That's how you deal with the faithful of the land, David. And then, he who works deceit and tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Ha! David, you're the one that cooked up the scheme. You're the one that brought Uriah home. And you're the one that said, let's get him drunk so that he can go over to his house and I can get off the hook. Marvelous standards, David. Commendable goals. And I'm not saying by any stretch, ladies and gentlemen, that we shouldn't set high goals. I I even think David would have loved to have built an irresistible testimony. 
David could have really said, Amen. When Dr. Young was talking about character, <clears throat> when he heard about that humility business, all oh, he would have said, that boy, he knows what he's talking about. He would want to be those things too. But he couldn't pull it off. Neither can we. I would suggest, ladies and gentlemen, that since early July, we aren't one whit more humble than we were when we first heard that sermon. I would further suggest that in terms of contentment, the way we solved our contentment problem is that we went out and bought something else. In terms of our marriages, I didn't need you to tell me my marriage was bad, Dr. Young. I didn't need you to create any appetite to make it better. I've been wanting to make it better for years. But you know what? It ain't any better. Yeah, I, I love the standards. I'm delighted, Dr. Young, that you set high goals for us. But the problem is, I just don't seem to be able to pull it off. If David couldn't pull it off, there's no wonder that I can't. I ran across a story um, about a guy whose name is Thomas Carlyle. I, I recognize the name. He's an old Scottish uh, philosopher and uh, sometimes preacher. But when he was a child, he was sitting around uh, his family fire with his family, and they were all talking about uh, preachers and churches. And Thomas Carlyle spoke up and he said, uh, You know, um, if I were ever to be a preacher, uh, I would make short work of it. I would go up to the pulpit, look out on the congregation and tell them this. You good people know what you should be doing. Now go home and do it. I did that all summer. I looked at you good people. And I said, you good people know what you should be doing. Now go home and do it. In this story with Thomas Carlyle, his mother spoke up and said, Aye, Thomas, but would ye tell them how? And I want you to know, by design, I haven't given you a word of how. I did have a chink in my plan. This sermon was not supposed to fall on Labor Day weekend when everybody's out in their jet skis and we, the unpopular, are left. <laughs> Definitively, uh, provedly, we are unpopular people. Uh, we didn't get invited anywhere. So here we sit, listening to good old Dr. Young. But I really, this should have been earlier, not when everybody was gone, because what I want to do this morning is tell ye how. But first I need to tell you the problem. Because, ladies and gentlemen, I believe in you. I believe that almost to a man or woman, you would like to say, you know, yes, I would like to be a woman of character, a woman of reality, a man of humility. But we're not doing so well. And the problem, the problem, ladies and gentlemen, the problem is the flesh. We're going to be looking all around the Bible today 
but one of the places that I want to allude to a couple of times, and, and I'll, we'll look at the book of Galatians a couple of times, and so kind of stay with me, but one of the passages that I think you know and we don't need to turn to is in John 15. It's that passage about uh, the, the vine and the branches. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. But in that story, found in John 15, verses 1 through 7 or so, Jesus makes a statement, and I'm not sure we believe what he says, because Jesus makes this statement. He says, without me, you can do nothing. Nada. Zippo. Zilch. Nothing. Zero. You know what a zero is, don't you, ladies and gentlemen? You know what nothing is? Nothing is a zero with the edges trimmed off. You can do nothing. Without me, says Jesus, you can do nothing. And ladies and gentlemen, thus the problem is defined. What you and I are, what I'm afraid we're up to is, you and I really want to be humble. You and I really want to be men and women of character. But we have forgotten this statement by Jesus that without Him... You're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the flesh profits nothing. Now, by the way, that statement is found in John chapter 6, verse 63. And it's in an altogether different context. Jesus is talking about how a man becomes a Christian. And he says, in that act of becoming a Christian, the flesh profits nothing. But we're not talking about becoming a Christian. We're talking about living as a Christian. We're talking about a pursuit of Christ, not a discovery of Christ. But Jesus later on says, those of you who are pursuing holy things, you've got to know something. And the first thing that you must come to grips with is this. Without me, says Jesus... You ain't going anywhere. Without me, you can do nothing. Let me read you a statement in Galatians chapter 3. You might want to find Galatians. We're going to turn to it a couple of times. But Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. Listen to this simple statement in Galatians 3, 3. Having begun in the Spirit... Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? That's a rhetorical question, ladies and gentlemen. The answer is obvious. The answer is no. That is, you began by the Spirit bringing you to life. In that sovereign, gracious work of the Holy Spirit, when He reborned us, when He opened our eyes and we began this pursuit of Christ by coming to know Him as a personal Savior, did you begin in the, in the Spirit and now... Are you so foolish as to think that you're going to continue and be made perfect by the flesh? Oh, don't be so stupid. Don't be so malinformed as to think that you began in the Spirit, but you're going to continue in the flesh. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the flesh, the flesh is the problem. Our flesh is wholly incapable of pulling off anything divine. And the starting point is to realize that all confidence in the flesh is the problem, not the solution. 
Gang, I know you people, at least most of you. I've grown to love you. And I know there's more men in this room besides me who would like to be more humble. How you doing? How you doing, brothers? The problem is the flesh. Now, some of you are going to be sitting there saying, now, wait a minute, Jimmy, I have been taught all my life that I am to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in my sanctification process. That is true. The question becomes, I think, how do you f- define the nature of that cooperation? What, in what does that cooperation consist? We're going to talk about that in a minute. But first, you must understand the problem is that you and I have decided, okay, I'm going to be more humble, and we decide we're going to steal our wills and screw up our courage, and we're going to grind it out, and we're going to become more humble if it kills us. How you doing? How you doing with that? Is it working? Has it produced a modicum of more humility? You know... This Bible says something about being a servant. We all know that, don't we? We're not very good at that, are we? We're good at hiring servants, not being them. And uh, so we say, well, you know, I know that my church wants me to be a servant, and I know that the Bible says I'm supposed to be a servant, so, you know, I'm going to be a better servant. And so we go do servant things. But down in our heart of hearts, we know I'm no more of a servant today than I was last year when I first taught that Sunday school class. The problem is the flesh. Now, let me begin telling you how. Guys, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I, I wonder if you've really feasted on this statement before. Because it is worthy of a feast, ladies and gentlemen. Follow as I read simply one verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus. Now the Him is God the Father. But of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus. That is, because God has worked this wonderful work, you find yourself as related to Jesus Christ. You are a saved human. By Him, but of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Who, and that who refers to Christ Jesus. The antecedent of the impersonal pronoun who is Christ Jesus. That is, Christ Jesus became for us. Are you ready? Look at it. Christ Jesus became for us. Number one, wisdom from God. Okay, we all knew that. We all knew that wisdom is not something we possess much of, and so the wisdom came from God. Okay, we're we're with you. That Jesus became for us righteousness. Oh, boy, did we ever know that one. Theologically, we got that truth down because we know there is no righteousness before God except Jesus' and if we ever dreamt of standing in God's presence clothed in our own righteousness, we will die. 
Righteousness, Jesus has given us. He is our righteousness. And you'll skip a word. You'll notice there's the word redemption. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've got that one down. Jesus is my redemption. He is my righteousness. I know that and I understand it fully. But did you notice the word in between? Righteousness and redemption. Jesus Christ has become for us not only our wisdom from God, not only our redemption, not only our righteousness, Jesus Christ is also become for us our sanctification. Gang, you and I would never dream of appealing to obedience to the Ten Commandments to be saved, now would we? We would never dream of doing something that foolish and saying, Oh, the reason that I'm a Christian is because I obeyed the Ten Commandments. We would never dream of appealing to obedience to the Ten Commandments for our justification. Would we? We wouldn't dream of doing something that foolish. But we would dream of appealing to obedience to the Ten Commandments as the means to our sanctification. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, we have turned sanctification into a, into a list of moral do-goodisms. Gang, if you take my whole series this summer and add it all up, all you've got is moralism. Look with me at Galatians 3 again. And follow this argument on the part of the Apostle Paul. It's pretty simple. Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. The law served a purpose. The Ten Commandments convicted us that we were guilty in need of a Savior, and it acted as our tutor that we might be brought to Christ and thus might be justified by faith. Okay? But after this faith has come, after faith has come, after you've stepped into the kingdom, notice what he says. We are no longer under a tutor. What tutor? The law. Ladies and gentlemen, the standard, the measurement by which we can measure how well we're doing is not to be found in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, that what you and I have done in this process of sanctification is turn it into a moralistic effort on our own parts. When 1 Corinthians 1 says that Jesus is my sanctification. Gang, may I remind you that that Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Gang, we would not dream of boasting about our justification, now would we? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We wouldn't dream of boasting about our justification. But when it comes to sanctification, oh, how proud of our efforts we are. And I'm so glad that I have arrived at a posture in my spiritual life that I'm not like Him. Gang, Paul says in Galatians 6 that if there's any boast that comes out of our mouth, it's supposed to be about a cross. Not how far we have attained in this pursuit of holy things. So guys, that's the first point. 
you and I must come to grips with the idea that Jesus Christ not only provided justification, He has provided sanctification, and we are being asked to abide in Him if there's ever going to be any progress. Now, but what does it mean to abide in Christ? That's my next step. Go with me. If I am to abide in this Christ who is my sanctification, what does it mean to abide? Well, let me show you a text, ladies and gentlemen, that I want to... I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to be uh, somewhat uh, daring. I want to show you something that I bet you 60% of you have never seen before. Uh, it's kind of risky, being the Bible students that you are. But turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Did you get that? Have you ever seen that before? The Lord, I am being asked to abide in Christ. I am being asked to abide in the Lord. And now I'm being told by Paul that the Lord is the Spirit. Gang, here's the point. In terms of this pursuit of holy things, the absolute fundamental of a world, a life of sanctification has to do with my pursuit of a relationship that is already indwelling me, that being with the Holy Spirit of God. My sanctify, the, the whole work of sanctification hinges not upon my efforts and my, my uh, human ingenuity. It depends on my, my submission to the indwelling Holy Spirit to grant life. For instance, let's say that I do want to be more humble. How do I get there, ladies and gentlemen? What is the nature of my cooperation when I want to be more humble? Is it to grind it out? Clench my teeth? And then I'm going to be humble. No, ladies and gentlemen. It has to do with submission to the indwelling Holy Spirit as I approach Him and beg Him. Oh, Holy Ghost of God. Grant it to be so. Empower me that I might find progress in this pursuit of humility. Gang, listen to this. In... Um, Psalm 51, the David's great penitential psalm. In verse 10, David says this. Now, this is just after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba. He goes to God and he says, Create in me a clean heart. Now here's our version of that. God, I really blew it. I need to be better. I have done a wicked thing, and God, I'm not going to do that anymore. Oh God, I am going to be a man of character. When in fact, ladies and gentlemen, you can't pull that off. We are reliant upon the Holy Spirit of God to create within us a clean. Gang, listen to Paul's 
admonitions. Listen to him as he implores us to be holy men and women. Listen, this is in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit. In verse 25, same chapter. If we live in the Spirit, that is, if you and I have been brought to life by the sovereign regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, if we live in the Spirit, that is, if we've been brought to life by the Spirit, then let us also walk in the Spirit. We were brought to life in the Spirit and the whole thing continues as we walk in the Spirit. Gang, you know the text, you know the verse. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul says, Be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you know what that has to do? Do you know what that means? Guys, do you know the verse says something, the, the whole verse says something like this. Do not be drunk with new wine, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Greek of the, of the verb there is one that can be ably translated. Be ye being filled. Go on being filled. Be filled today. Be filled tomorrow. Be filled the next day. Keep it up. Keep on going. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. But the first part is very interesting too. Do not be drunk with new wine. Anybody in this room ever been drunk? Not us. I'm not, I'm not trying to make light of being drunk. It's a bad thing, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's denounced by the Scriptures, and I'm sorry that you've ever experienced something like that. <clears throat> it's, not a, it's not a holy thing. It's not a good thing. It's, it's, it's altogether unfortunate. But I'm just asking, have you ever been there? Or have you ever seen it on television? You know what it's like. You know that all of the... Um, uh, the, the, the man who is drunk is controlled by the influence of alcohol. He's being dominated by alcohol. All of his sensibilities are now brought into submission to the influence of alcohol in his life. Well, the Bible turns to us and says, Don't be drunk with wine. But in, a, in opposition to that going on, here's what I want you to do. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is, the same influence that alcohol has over the drunk, let the Holy Spirit have over us. Might all of those sensibilities be brought into submission to the Holy Spirit of God? Might we be dominated by His influence, controlled by His, His ministry and indwelling power? And Paul says, don't do that once. Do it ongoingly. Gang, I, I am afraid that all of our systems of sanctification are based on nothing more than, than willpower and kind of an unaided intellect. And I'm telling you, it hadn't gotten us very far. I, I am convinced that that approach to Christian living produces rigid, smug, relationally distant people. Is that you? I know that beneath all that, there's a heart that wants to be right. But I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, in the flesh, we can't pull it off. We can't. Let me close with a few things. and I want you to know that in terms of trying to summarize all this, that our best intentions are still impotent to overcome the downward pull of the flesh. 
It is only the Holy Spirit's enabling power that will allow any advance. Let me, let me ask this question. This, this might confuse you just a little bit, but stay with me. What would you say is the primary reason that non-Christians, humanly speaking, that non-Christians remain non-Christians? What is the reason that non-Christians will not come to Christ? The primary reason is, I think, and I think you'll agree, is that they don't see the need. Now, that's not my point. Here's my point. What is the primary reason why Christians won't come to Christ for sanctification? They don't see a need. Why? Do you know how often I study my Bible? Do you know how many verses I've memorized? Why? They tell me I pray in public better than anybody they know. in terms of turning us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Without me, you can do nothing. What I'm pleading for, ladies and gentlemen, is a spirit-dominated life of liberty. I didn't read you the whole verse back in 2 Corinthians 3, which, ladies and gentlemen, you need to spend some time with later on. I didn't read you the whole verse, but let me read it to you now. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Don't you love that? Don't you love the idea of liberty? Well, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, flesh produces bondage. Flesh produces Pharisees. Flesh produces legalism. Flesh produces criticism. Flesh produces judgmentalism. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there, there is liberty. I'm pleading for a Spirit-intoxicated life of liberty. And that approach, I think, will make a vast difference in areas like humility, personal brokenness, reliance, worship... Gang, the the Christian life is not hard. It is downright impossible. And if anybody could have pulled it off, it would have been David, the man after God's own heart. And he couldn't do it. And neither can I. Gang, um... One of the things that I want us to be known for around here at Grace Van is that we're a contact. We're, a, we're an environment of grace. But in a world of grace, nothing comes because it is deserved. Everything that comes in a world of grace comes by way of gift, including our advances in holy things. Here's a quote I want you to get used to because... You're going to hear it a lot. I don't even know who said it, but he said, give this some thought this afternoon. He said, sanctification is simply the art of getting used to justification. 
Sanctification is just the art of getting used to my justification. That's profound, ladies and gentlemen. We'll talk about it at a later date. But in His sovereignty, God makes demands. And then He provides that which is necessary to meet those demands. And then He rejoices in the results. Everything in a world of grace comes by way of gift. One application, well, let me, let, me, let me tell my story and then one application I'm finished. I found this quote from Soren Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard said this, Sometimes when we present the gospel, it's like taking a cookbook to a hungry man. <laughs> Sometimes when we present the gospel, it's like taking a cookbook to a hungry man. Here's a man starving for a relationship with God and we point him in the direction of a cookbook. You know, that dry, lifeless thing that tells you how to make food. It just doesn't tell you how to get any or feast on it. It's just a dry, lifeless cookbook. Now, that's really not my point. My point is this. In your walk with Jesus Christ, have you noticed something dry? Is there something lifeless? Have you, did you come to a plateau in your spiritual advance and stop? And you've been there for the last 15 years? The problem, ladies and gentlemen, is the flesh. Because without Him, we can do nothing. One application, I'm finished. I know that I have created some questions for you. I'm sorry. I, this is 30 minutes of, um, I, you know, I, I didn't answer all your questions. But if you still have questions, we are about to study Romans 5 and 6 on Wednesday nights. Probably the richest portion of Scripture concerning these issues to be found anywhere in the Bible. Come. It's going to take us until next May to finish. I dare you. Is this important to us? A spirit-led walk with Jesus Christ. Then I'm telling you, 98% of your questions will be answered in the following Wednesday nights. Come. Let's begin to chase after holy things in the power of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. It is our meat and our drink. It is our life. It is life to us because what it points us to is the, is the river of living waters, the fountain of living waters. Oh God, for those of us who have come upon dry times, Father, grant us that we might discover afresh the, the, the buoyancy and the excitement of what it means to live, not based on flesh, but based on the power and the might of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Father, if you have led people here today who have not yet met Jesus Christ, might they come to discover Him in all of His beauty soon. Give us the privilege of introducing people to Christ. And might that be done under the influence and intoxication of God the Holy Spirit. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.